0: Everybody, I'll turn to John 19, please. 28. John 19, 28. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine On a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. I want to talk today about the pleasure that is found in the cross, and to see the work that has been done for us, and the incredible love, and the the extent of the mercy and grace that has been granted to us because of that. If we were all honest, at times when we talk about the cross, you can hear a little bit of sadness in our hearts and in our language as we talk about the cross because of what our sin did to Jesus. But today I want to ask us to look at the cross, not with a perspective of sadness in regard to what our sin did. We are intimately acquainted with that. But I want to call us today to look at the cross and what it accomplished, that it is a victory. It is a moment of triumph. It is a a perspective of the glory of Jesus and what He had done. And I want to see the pleasure that it brought the Father and the pleasure that it brought the Son. We will see today and be reminded that the cross is this great place of love and, and the will of God meeting together for our redemption. It is on the fullest of display as it becomes this place of great victory. And so as we finish John 19 today, John's going to give us some insight into the mind of Jesus in the very last moments before he dies. And so as I was reading and praying about today, I asked this question of myself, and I want to pose it this morning. What was in Jesus' mind in these last moments? How was He feeling? As sometimes we look at the cross and we see the reality of what our sin did, did to Christ, and so there's a little bit of sadness that's connected to it. Was He sad in these last moments? Or was He experiencing pleasure and joy as he was finishing the work that his father had given him and sent him to accomplish. And so I went back and I looked at a number of different things in John's gospel that I think give us an insight to what Christ was thinking in these last moments. And so speed reading in honor of Larry Metcalf who used to like to take us all over the place when he preached. I want you to go ...to John chapter 4, and I want to just read some verses... ...to kind of show us probably what was in the mind of Christ. John chapter 4. And we'll work our way back to John 19. John 4 verse 34, he's just finished a conversation with a Samaritan woman. She has gone back into town. The disciples are like, Rabbi, eat something. And he's like, I'm not hungry So in John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So as Christ is hanging on the cross, there's a fulfillment that is here in John chapter 4. He is eating as he hangs on the cross. Why is he eating? He is accomplishing his father's will. So even though he is hanging there, he is accomplishing His Father's will. He is doing the Father's will. And so therefore, there is satisfaction there. Go to John 5, verse 30. So Jesus derived His nourishment from the will of the Father. And so as He's hanging on the cross, He is doing that. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Go to John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So in both of these verses, Jesus is communicating... That while he was here, his sole purpose was to do what the Father had asked him to do. So in John 5.30, in John 6.38, he says, I didn't come to do my own thing, but I came to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Go to John chapter 12 now. So Jesus' death, and He knows this, will open the door to believe in Him and to believe in the Father. And so in John 12, verse 44, Jesus, we're going to see Him cry out again. He's going to be loud today. He's loud here. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him. Who sent me? This is also being fulfilled as Christ is on the cross. This reason that he speaks of here in John 12, 44 and 45 brought him pleasure as he is dying in our place as our substitute to accomplish this. Go to verse 49 of John 12. Jesus perfectly father, followed the Father's commandment and teaching and his teaching. On the cross he speaks seven times that we learn from and we know from those words about who he is and how we ought to live. John 12 49, for I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. He loved obeying his father. This was Christ's great pleasure. And so as he is hanging from the cross, he knows that He lived this commandment, that He said what the Father wanted Him to say. He did and participated in everything that the Father wanted Him to accomplish. And so as He hangs in our place, He is accomplishing that. And because that is His food, there is pleasure in the moment, though there is great pain that is in His life. Go to John chapter 17 now. A couple more. His death made the way to eternal life, and His death made the way so that we can know God. John 17, verse 3, Jesus defines for us eternal life. It's just not heaven, it's heaven and so much more. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent so on that night, Jesus prays this. And as he hangs on the cross, he would have had pleasure here, knowing that this prayer is being fulfilled, that he had prayed just hours before. People would come to know God. They would come to a relationship with God. And so as he hangs from the cross, yes, great pain. And yet his great passion was to accomplish the Father's will. He is doing that. And so in the moment, he is having Pleasure because he is accomplishing the will of the Father. Look at verse 23 of John 17. Jesus' death would affirm that he was sent and that he loves the Father and that the Father loves. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So his death would affirm that he was sent. His death would affirm. That the Father loved broken people, inviting them into relationship, reminding them that we are also loved by Jesus as well. And so this is also being fulfilled and accomplished on the cross. And then we learn, I want you to go now to Hebrews chapter 12 in a very familiar verse. But let's look at it with me. Don't just listen to it. Hebrews chapter 12. So I posed the question before we began to read these verses. Was Jesus sad on the cross? <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 2 gives us an interesting perspective. All those verses before gave us a great perspective. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy of that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, again, let me just stop there and you can go back to John chapter 19, but let me go back to the question. So, if his great will was to do the will of the Father and to accomplish this and to, to be passionate about this and to pursue the Father at every turn, And all of this is being fulfilled as Christ hangs on the cross. So the writer of Hebrews gives us a perspective. How did Christ endure the cross? Was it sadness? Is that what 12.2 says? No. It was what? It was joy. Who for the joy that was set before him to accomplish what the Father had sent him to do. Jesus' great, great will was that. To do everything and to say and to accomplish and to go and to speak and to teach in line in every way that would please the Father. And so, how did He endure the cross? How did God, in a body here, dying in our place as our substitute, how did He, as He becomes sin and He bears our sin in His body, as the Father turns His face away, How did he endure all of that? By joy. By knowing this, that I am accomplishing what the Father has sent me to do. 33 years of sinlessness. Never talking back. Never speaking on his own behalf. Never acting on his own will. On his own authority. But in every way, pleasing the Father. In every single moment, every single instance with every kind of decision, and as He hangs on the cross, deep pain. And yet, when you look at the seven words and phrases that He speaks from the cross, you see grace and tenderness. You see God's authority, God's power, God's willingness to extend mercy and forgiveness to people. So who for joy that was set before Him, accomplishing the Father's will, he endured the cross is that not amazing today to think back on again i know me i know some of you sometimes we're not real pleasurable god is so amazing is that he died for those who could not offer anything to him but a sinful heart and yet he gave the great greatest gift that could be given he gave himself and he gave himself in a way where he willingly laid down his life. So John is going to give us insight today to what Christ was thinking. This was pleasure for Christ, not in regard to because he liked the pain, but he, it was pleasure because the pain was going to bring the Father glory. And that was Christ's great, great passion. So let's look at the first thing this morning that I think is important for us to be reminded of, and that's the pleasure of Jesus in fulfilling Scripture. So look with me in 28 and 29. This is fascinating. So after this, notice what it says here. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. So he's got his faculties with him. He's not not in so much pain that he's delirious. He knows something that is happening now. What He came to do is accomplished. He is going to give up His Spirit in a moment. He's going to entrust His Spirit to the Father, knowing that everything has now been finished. The reason that He came. Said something to fulfill the Scripture. And so here's what it was. Just just two words. I thirst. And so as somebody hears that that's nearby... They go grab a jar of this, full of sour wine that's there. It was kind of the cheapest drink that was around at that time. So they put, it, put a sponge, dipped it in there, lifted it up to him on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. Let's talk about this for a moment. The time has come for Christ to finish the reason why he came, why he was sent. He knows the appointed time is just minutes away. Can you imagine the thoughts that must have been filling his his mind at this time as he finishes the work that the Father had entrusted to him? We marvel at the cross from our standpoint. We're in awe. It humbles us. It it leads us to worship him and and to desire to walk in obedience to him. It's difficult for us to know what all he was thinking, what what all was clearly in his mind, but we do get some insight here. The cosmic battle for the souls of humanity is about to be accomplished. It's going to be victorious. And note what John writes here. He says, And knowing, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. Let's let's think on this just for a second. Jesus knows all things. Are we in agreement about that? He knows all things. He's God, He's sovereign, He's not surprised by anything. He knows everything. So they're hanging on the cross. He knows all things. He also knows on this day, watch this. He knows on this day that there's an Old Testament passage in Psalms that hasn't been accomplished yet. So as He hangs on the cross, where are His thoughts? Pleasing the Father and on Scripture. And He knows that there's an Old Testament verse in Psalm 69, verse 21 that hasn't been accomplished yet. And so watch Jesus pleasing the father, knowing that everything has been accomplished, thinks about the fulfillment of this. And so he wants to fulfill scripture because scripture was Jesus's great passion. So there on the cross, he fulfills this psalm and he says, I thirst. So he knows this. So I wondered this week, how did John know about this? As he writes this to us, how did John know what Jesus knew in the moment? That he knew all these things. Well, one possibility, obviously, is that as John writes this, 40 to 50 years after Jesus dies on the cross, the Holy Spirit revealed it to Jesus. Second possibility is, Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. And he talked with them. It's possible that Jesus shared that with them. That I said this on this night because that goes back to Psalm chapter 69. This is what Psalm sixty-nine twenty-one says. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That was written, by the way, a long, 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 long time before Jesus utters the words on the cross. So either the Holy Spirit revealed it to John or Jesus told him the details of it after the resurrection for this is absolutely certain as jesus hangs on the cross he is fully aware of the fulfillment of prophecies that are happening at his feet and in and around him i want to make a practical point here that i think is very important you and i cannot fathom the weight of this day that was on jesus dying in our place The wrath of the Father being poured on Him. And in the midst of all of that, He has great pleasure because He is accomplishing the work in which He has come. And yet in the midst of that, we must not lose sight that His mind at the moment was still on Scripture. How important is Scripture to us if it was that important to Jesus as He hangs on the cross? Scripture must become our very food. How do we do the will of God? By knowing the Scripture. By walking in the Spirit. By desiring to see the Scripture be alive in us. And so here's Jesus in His last moments knowing all things. Knowing that Psalm 69, 21 has not been fulfilled, but knowing that it needs to be fulfilled. His mind on Scripture his mind on the Father speaks Scripture to fulfill it. His mind was ever on Scripture, and so should ours. Hyssop branch, let me talk about that just for a moment, it was a small bush-like plant it's from the mint family. It had purple flowers on it. It grew with very long stems. And so as they are there, Jesus speaks the words to fulfill Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. Um, if you go all the way back, and you don't need to do that, I'll read that for us. But if you go all the way back to the original Passover, this is Passover, 2,000 years ago as Christ is on the cross. This is what the Israelites were told at the first Passover. This is Exodus twelve twenty one. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb." Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel of the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So hyssop at the original Passover clearly served a practical purpose as they took the bush-like plant, they would dip it in the blood that was, that was taken from the original Passover lamb, for the families and their clans. It was marked on the doorposts over the door so that when the angel of death came into into Egypt on that night, it would pass over and they would be saved. It's just interesting, again, how these words keep coming back. And so as hyssop was used on that first night, now hyssop is lifted up to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they give him something to drink in that moment. Jesus has not given any water on the cross, and yet that is exactly what He is offering, water of life, for anyone to come and for anyone to drink. So on this day, Jesus has great pleasure in the fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture was His great passion. Let me remind you of something that He said, and we'll move on to the next point. Matthew 5, 17 and following, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So again, on the cross, what is he doing? Thinking about scripture, making sure things are being fulfilled. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So somewhere around your seat is this page. We're not going to go through it, but I I wanted to give it to you. This is from Matthew to John, all the places in the Gospels where it said this, this was done to fulfill scripture. And so Jesus all the way in every aspect of his ministry from Matthew to the end of John did things in line with scripture to fulfill the scripture. I encourage you just place that in there somewhere this week. Go back and take a look at that. Let's look at the next thing this morning. The pleasure of Jesus in laying down his life. Look at verse 30 with me, please. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is an interesting Greek word, this phrase that comes in our English Bible that says, it is Finished. When you look at the earliest instance where the Greeks used this word, it described a going somewhere, you pay your taxes, which we'd love to do, right? Amen? No, 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 don't amen. We have to pay our taxes because we have to pay our taxes. But the Greeks used this word that somebody would come in and they would would have a piece of paper that says, this is how much you owe. And the person would come, they would pay every bit of, of the number that's there, on the piece of paper and they would mark it to say paid in full that was original meaning of this greek word it pointed to something that had been accomplished that had been completely paid for so in light of that when jesus speaks this word from the cross he says this finished things are paid in full now in regard to salvation it must have sounded strange there looking at this bloody beaten man hanging from the cross saying these words seemingly out of context for sure in regard to the religious leaders and the Romans. What? Are you kidding me? Taxes aren't being paid for today. And Jesus was obviously talking about something totally different. I have come. I have accomplished my Father's work. It is paid in full. Finished. Finished. So there he is. It has now happened. He has paid for the sins of the world. John would later write these words. Listen to these words in 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. We've talked about this word before, it means wrath bearer. He bore the Father's wrath in our place as our substitute. He is the propitiation for our sins. Listen to this and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Paid in full. Finished. Finished. Luke gives us some insight at this moment. So in Luke 23, 46, it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. This is an interesting Greek word that Luke uses here. This word commit or gave up in the Greek means to hand over something, to give someone something. So in this moment when Jesus says, finished, accomplished, paid in full, he's he's done what he needs to do. And so what does he do? The words that he uses here is that he handed over his spirit. He gave his spirit. As he lived his life here, trusting the Father in every kind of way, as he dies, he trusts the Father in the last moment and hands his spirit over, gives up his spirit to the Father. It's a statement of trust. It's one that we see from him in every aspect when we see him in the Gospels, how he lived. He died the same way that he lived, trusting the Father with his life in every way. And as this happens, Christ redeems those who would believe. What would our life be like if we trusted the Father like Jesus trusted the Father? That every moment of our day we just trusted and we handed over our life. We died to self and we continued just to give our lives over to his lordship. I want to ask you to go back to John chapter 10 just for a moment. Because I want to remind us of who's in charge on the day that Jesus dies. John 10. All right, look up here for a second. Let me say this before you read. Satan is not in charge of this day. Death is not in charge of this day. God is. If he's sovereign, he's in charge of everything. So Satan may be thinking he's got a great victory. Death may be thinking great victory. The Son of God is going to die. They are not in charge on this day. God is. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 10, that the Father's in charge and he is in charge. So look with me in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life For the sheep. Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, all of these words in John chapter 10 that we just read there, all of these words are being fulfilled as Jesus is hanging on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. Our shepherd came to us, sent by the Father, and never once hesitated to embrace the laying down of his life. Did you notice what he said there? Who, lays down, who laid down his life? Death? Did death lay his life down? No. Did Satan lay his life down on the cross? No. Jesus laid his life down willingly for you and I. He wasn't forced. He didn't have his arm twisted. His great pleasure was to please the Father. So the way to do that was to willingly lay his life down to become our substitute in our place. And so this is what he does. So as he hangs in great pain, yes, he is accomplishing the Father's will so he has pleasure, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame And therefore, He gets the name above all names. He is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of power next to His Father. And this was all done by His laying down His life. And when you stop and you think about it, His willingness to do this, it affirms more the glory of Christ. Jesus is the only one who has ever been on planet Earth who did not have any sins that needed to be paid for. But here He is on the cross... Dying for you and I. He is the only one who is qualified to do this. For we deserve to die in our sin. And yet, because of God's great mercy and God's great grace, Jesus dies in our place. Later, Paul writes these words that have become an anthem of the church. They should be an anthem of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I want to go back to something we've talked about many times and I want to to point it out. So this section here, y'all are sin. This section over here, you're the right hand of looking this way. Y'all are Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. There's a great theological word. It's called imputation. It was greatly revived and talked about during the Reformation. And this word here that Paul writes about and speaks of in regard to salvation is this, is this idea. So in our account, in our account, it's an accounting word, in our account was sin. We couldn't do anything about what was in our account. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't clear the account. There's nothing that we could do. So when Christ came, He's God, He's full of righteousness, He's holy, everything about Him, pleased the Father, sinless, He's good. So as Christ dies on the cross, a transaction happens and takes place It is made available for those when we come to know Christ. And so, so in theological terms, people call this imputation. It means this, taking something from an account and putting it in another account. But what we're reading about here is not just a single imputation. It's what? Double. So what's what happens at salvation? What's what happens because of the cross? So this section here, sin, all all of the sin was taken from this account and it was moved over to this account on Christ's body as he bears our sin. At salvation, here's what God does. All of Christ's righteousness, which is the only way that you and I can get into heaven and have salvation, it is taken from Christ and it is put over here in our account. Double imputation. How glorious is that? We couldn't fix ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't go to church enough. We couldn't be baptized enough. And so as Christ says, I have finished this, He is accomplishing the work of that at salvation. What was in his account comes into our account. What was in our account was put into into his account as he died for us on the cross. It's an amazing reality of what has been done for us here. Both Matthew 27.50 and Mark 15.37 tell us that Jesus' strength was not gone from him. They both say this, that in a very loud voice, Jesus speaks these words. He doesn't whisper them. So he must have, late in the day, if you don't know anything about crosses as well, they would, they would also take wood, and they would, they would take two pieces of wood on this section here, and they would take two pieces of wood, and they would put them together, and they would nail it to the cross, creating a point. So that as you hung on the cross, you would have to push up from the nails to lift yourself up to breathe. But your tailbone would rub against that pointy part. It was just another way that they just could inflict more pain. So here he is late in the day, most likely with that, it was called a saddle, I think it was called. And as he pushes himself out, he doesn't whisper it, he yells it out. And he says this, finished, finished. What I came to do has been accomplished finished and then the scripture tells us this that jesus it says it's a it's an interesting greek word it says that he our english translation says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit some of the old translations do you like your pillow at nighttime you like your pillow after a hard day Part of the idea of this Greek word that he bowed his head, it means to pillow yourself. To lay your head down on a pillow. And if that's any bit of an accurate translation, which it's part of, that, part of the way the Greeks use that word, that as he bowed his head, what was he doing? He was leaning on who? His father. He bowed his head, he pillowed himself into the father and he gave up his spirit. Every instance of this, when you look at it, it says gave up his spirit, indicates that he wills himself into the Father's hands. He, if, if you'll remember, do you remember when they came and Joseph, we read a while ago, they, uh, I don't know if we read a while ago, but in one of the other Gospels it says that when, when Joseph of Arimathea came and said, um, I'd like the body of Jesus, Pilate was like, he's dead already? He was shocked. That Jesus was already dead. Because most of the time people didn't die quickly. It was over several days that they hung on the cross. The Romans liked to do this because it sent messages to everybody in the kingdom. You better do what we tell you or this potentially is your fate. Pilate's shocked that Jesus was dead already. And the picture here is this. Is that he wills his life. He gives up his spirit to the Father. And he dies in our place. I remind us again of what I said a while ago. We should never say death won on this day. It did not. Death was defeated. God is sovereign. Death was not in charge. God is is sovereign of this day. Satan was not. This is a day of triumph. This is a day of victory. God was in charge. Jesus gives up his spirit. He rests in His Father, and He places His hands and His life and His Spirit in the Father. What was finished? So when He says the word finished, what was finished? Well, He bears the wrath of the Father, and He dies as our substitute. That was what was accomplished in that moment. Now let's talk about what John saw, because John gets very personal. Look with me in 31 now. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross... On the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Here's what that means. So, on Fridays, the Sabbath was always important. They had to get ready for the Sabbath. But this day was in a more important Sabbath day because it was the Sabbath day um, coming up during Passover week. So, it was really important. And so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So I want to talk about two things here just for a moment. Let's talk about the factual things that, that, uh, that are spoken of here that John writes for us. And then we're going to look at the personal things that John wants to communicate in regard to what he sees. Let's talk about the factual things. So John gives us factual pictures of what happens. This is the day of preparation. Um, the bodies couldn't stay on, on, on a tree uh, in Israel that was against uh, what was written in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy twenty one twenty two says this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And so they they couldn't. Again, most likely the religious leaders are like, hey, um, this is our high holy day, um, Passover. Um, Can y'all break their legs because we need to get them down from the tree because it violates um, our scripture so that we can get them in the tomb. not trying to be graphic here, but they had a big, huge club. And they would come to the men that are just about three feet off the ground and they would, they would take that club and, and pound their shins to break their legs so that they couldn't push up anymore and they would suffocate to death on the cross. So it's clear that they did that to the two thieves that were there. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Just one other thing I want to point out about the religious leaders here. Once again, they are just concerned about the Sabbath. They are not concerned about the Savior. Twelve times in the Gospels and some of them repeated instances that they fight Jesus about the Sabbath. The Romans were never in a rush to take anybody down from the cross, but the Jewish leaders here are, and so can we get them down off of the cross? Incidentally, also, let me point this out, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. That in the Old Testament, in regard to the Passover lamb, this is Exodus 12, verse 46. The lamb shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. So we learn that none of Jesus' bones are broken, fulfilling Exodus 12, 46. So that's the factual things. Let's talk about the personal things here. So John moves from that to share his heart and some things that he wanted people to know. So look at 35. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John... Writing later, I think, must have smiled, thinking back on all of the scripture that was fulfilled on that day that he witnessed himself. Soldiers gambling, none of Jesus' bones being broken. And again, writing this, four to five decades later, John is, and he must have found pleasure in, in being reminded that he'd given his life for the gospel And that the gospel is about the fulfillment of God's word going forth. And now John is being led to write by the Holy Spirit a factual account of what he himself saw. And I think he's moved by all of the fulfillment of Scripture that was connected to Jesus. And so now John writes three key things here. One, he says, listen, I'm writing this as a truthful eyewitness account I saw all of this myself. I saw scripture being fulfilled in front of me for three years when I was with Jesus and on the day that he died and on the time after when he rose from the dead. John saw it. Those who were, this is one of my issues with a lot of the attacks in this modern day about something that happened 2,000 years ago that people today think that they are smarter than those who were there on that day and saw it with their own eyes. And it has stood the test of time. Has there been anybody destroy Christianity in the last 2,000 years with the denial that Jesus died and the denial that Jesus rose? Now, people have tried, but it has not been accomplished. Why? Because he did die. And he did rise, and people saw him. And so John, on this day, is like, "I am a truthful eye witness." The second thing that he says here is, "This truth that I'm telling you is for this purpose to lead you to believe that everything that I've written is true." Truth leads to belief, and so he says that that you also may believe. I believe it. John's rights, and I'm writing this so that you would believe. And here's the third thing, personally, that he shares here, is that truth, again, we're coming back to a consistent theme that we talk about all the time and I talked about earlier. Truth is evidenced in Scripture. And so 36 and 37, John just shares two more things. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. That's also in Psalm, not just Exodus 12, that's also in Psalm 22. And again, another scripture, John uses this here. They will look on him whom they have pierced. This is interesting. The Jews occasionally hung people. We saw that a while ago, but they couldn't hang on a tree. They never, the Jews never used a sword unless in battle. But they never used a sword in criminal purposes. Zechariah, 500 years earlier from when Christ is hanging on the cross, wrote these words. Let me get to it. Uh, did, yeah, did I put it down? I didn't put it down, sorry. You can read it yourself. It's Zechariah 12, verse 10. It was written 500 years before. The unique thing about Zechariah's writing, the Jews stoned people to death. They never used a sword to spear. So the prophet writes something very unique. He writes that, that would have been way out of the norm, affirming the sovereign knowledge of God, that a sword would be used to be put inside um, of Christ's side and blood and water would flow out. Eyewitness accounts are important as long as they line up with Scripture, and John's does. And so John has the pleasure of seeing Scripture fulfilled on this day. Here's the last thing we need to look at. Let's talk about the personal love and care of Jesus' followers. So two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, show up on this day. These are the two followers' names. About 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem is Arimathea, where Joseph is from. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. They were the decision-making kind of Supreme Court of Israel. Luke writes this about Joseph. Luke 23, 50 and 51. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man. And he did not consent to their decision about this action of killing Jesus as he was looking for the kingdom of God. It was not unanimous among them to crucify Jesus. But he was a secret follower of Jesus because he knew what all the other religious leaders thought. He knew what it would cost him if he came out and said, I'm a follower of Jesus. But on this day, he makes it public, does he not? As he comes and says, can I take the body of Jesus? By doing so, he is identifying himself with Jesus in this moment. And he places his life in direct contradiction with his colleagues. He is identifying with Jesus publicly. It will no longer be a secret to anyone about Joseph. We don't know a whole lot about him after this. But notice his kindness. He wanted to take care of Jesus' body. He was a believer. Nicodemus was here as well. Um, brought 75 pounds of um, embalming stuff that they would use. Have you picked up 75 pounds lately? Like, you know, not weights where you, you know, some of you can curl 75 pounds, but I mean, can pick up something big. So probably some other people are with them, people carrying this. I don't know if it's on a cart with a mule or a horse or whatever, but this is a heavy thing that Nicodemus has brought so here are two men at the death of Jesus who originally were timid, but no longer so as they come all the way to the front and identify themselves with the body of Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 says this. I think here it is. I guess I had it on another page. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him they have, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now again, I want to I emphasize this. What's being fulfilled as they take the body to bury it and they're weeping? Zechariah 12.10, is being fulfilled. Even in their care and their love to take care of Jesus here. You know what the cross has an ability to do with timid Christians. When they see the fullness of it, it has an ability to wipe away the timidness and bring courage. So here's two men secretly believing in Jesus now on this day, like, no, we're with him. And they take care of his body. So Nicodemus intends to embalm the body of Jesus, so he brings this mixture of myrrh and aloes, Myrrh came from Arabia. Um, Aloes came that that day from India. Um, This is probably very costly. It's 75 pounds. It's a lot of stuff that they have. This is not a cheap burial that's taking place. This is an expensive one because they love Jesus. So they took his body and they bound it in the linen cloths and spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. By the way, let me just say this. He is dead. He hasn't passed out. He's not going to, on Sunday, be revived after he's been beaten, crucified, spear in his side, wake up and roll the stone away by himself. Couldn't do this. All these theories to debunk the resurrection are ridiculous. Two grown men, deeply faithful to Jesus, put his body in a tomb. Why? He's what? He's dead. He's dead. And they wrap his body and they put this myrrh and aloes on him. Paul would later write these great words, 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4. I deliver to you as of first importance from what I also received. Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, Paul writes, in accordance to the Scriptures. Why would Paul write in accordance to the Scriptures twice? To emphasize to us how important our understanding of God must be connected to the Scriptures. We must be in the Scriptures. Now I want you to go to Luke 23 and we're going to finish there. I want to finish just talking for a moment about the pleasure of beholding the cross. Luke 23. And I'm going to read one verse in Matthew before we get to Luke. It's pretty amazing what happens and takes place on this day that jesus dies in matthew chapter 27 listen to these words this is verses 52 and 53 you think his death is not significant and it didn't have power that went out on that day when he said finished 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 i've accomplished my father's will Matthew 27:51 says and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook and rocks were split tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many i don't have a whole lot of questions that if I could have God for an hour today and ask Him some questions, but if I could, this is one of the questions I would ask: Who came out of the tombs? Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, was born was buried in the Kidron Valley, just less than a mile away. Did Jehoshaphat come out of the tomb? I don't know. I don't know who came out of the tomb, but they came around and they talked to people. Can you imagine? How significant was the day when he said, it is finished, it's finished. So not only did that happen and take place on that day, then in Luke, Luke writes for us, three groups of people, or a group of people and two people who had their lives changed. Look with me, Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who You will be with me in paradise. So not only did dead saints come alive and walk around the city and talk to people, and people could see these Old Testament saints. There was a guy dying along with Jesus. As the day went along, he looks and he realizes, this guy's not like us. This is the only person who can get me into heaven. And so he asked Jesus, can I come along? And Jesus says, yeah, Today you will be with me. Look at verse 47 now in Luke 23. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying certainly this man was innocent. Matthew 27, 54 says this, he calls him the son of God. So he, he sees Jesus die. So you've got saints walking around the city. The temple's been torn in two. You've got a dying criminal who recognizes that the man who's dying with him can get him into paradise. And so he believes. A Roman centurion, a part of this crucifixion of Jesus, beholds all the things on this day. It becomes dark. The earth shakes. He watches Jesus. He listens to Jesus. And when he sees his death, he says these words, this is the Son of God. Now look at verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. What's that a picture of? In the Old Testament, when people would beat, themselves like this it's a picture of conviction it's a picture of repentance it's a picture of regret it's a picture of oh no what has happened so you've got a criminal you've got a centurion and you've got the crowds on this day recognizing what has happened and taken place here today is of the utmost importance so significant God has come and died in our place on the cross Peter calls on the day of Pentecost 40 days later for the crowds to hear what has happened and taken place. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2 as he reminds them that they were part of this and the conviction that's there that people believe on this day. So before we sing and think about what has been done for us on the cross, let me give you some takeaways for today. If you're taking some notes, please write these things down. See the cross with a heart and with eyes full of joy. This was done for our sake. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. See the cross with eyes of joy secondly god does things in line with scripture never outside of scripture god does things in line with scripture never outside of scripture so if you're here today and you're wondering is god's will ever a mystery no it's not read this this is his will This gives us the picture. Here's the third takeaway today. His life was not taken. He laid it down. His life was not taken. He laid it down. Death didn't get the victory on this day. Satan didn't get the victory. God was in charge. Fourthly, the scriptures were written and have come to us by eyewitnesses. They've come to us by people who saw and heard these things, so therefore, they are reliable. Here's the last thing to takeaway today there's going to come a time in all of our lives where being quiet, being fearful of others, what they may think, being timid, needs to be put away. And there's going to come a time in our life where we're going to have to be courageous and speak and stand and actually faithfully live our faith wherever it is that we go business school family whatever it is there comes a time to be like Joseph and Nicodemus no more secrets this is who I am and I love him and I recognize what he has done for me he died in my place and he's poured out love upon me he is the substitute For me, He is so holy, so righteous, that as He died, that the dead were awakened and walked around. Another dying man saw in that dying man, He could get Him to paradise. A man who was a professional crucifier stood at the cross and said, that's the Son of God. That's the Son of God. And the crowds went away that day just beating their breasts, recognizing something big happened here today. There's going to come a time, and there is a time, it's here, by the way. It's always been here for us to stand and to behold the Lamb. To behold the Lamb. And you know, one day... Said this, I hadn't said this in years, but I want to say it right now. I love our band. I love, I love listening to RC Crosby play the guitar wherever RC is. But I don't want to see RC. I want to see RC in heaven. I do. Sorry, don't want to say that. Okay, I just don't want him up front because when I get to heaven, guess who's going to be up front? The king is and we will behold scars we will behold the one who died in our place and we won't hold back worship then so why do it now why not start now of uniting our hearts and recognizing he who died in our place is worthy of our worship let's pray